As the Good People Fund's unconference approaches in November, Good People Talk welcomes Rabbi Joel Mosbacher, Senior Rabbi at Temple Sharei Tefillah in New York City, host for the two-day event. Rabbi Mosbacher, who will be a keynote speaker, talks about its significance to the Sharei Tefillah community and describes his own journey through the social action sphere with his work to end gun violence. Here is Rabbi Mosbacher in conversation with GPF Executive Director and Co-Founder, Naomi Eisenberger. Welcome, Rabbi. Thank you so much. Thank you for the incredible hospitality. You and your staff, every person there has welcomed us. It'll be an exciting two days of, of learning and sharing. And I will tell you that the inspiration in your building will probably be a, on a non-measurable level. And we are excited to be able to welcome the Shari Tefillah community at large to, to be part of this and to be inspired. We are honored that you have agreed to be one of our keynote speakers. Rabbi Joel Mosbacher has a very compelling story of his own. What do you see as the significance of bringing this conference to Shari Tefillah? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. And uh, thank you for choosing Shari Tefillah to to host the unconference. It is a, a huge honor for our congregation. Our congregation is uh, about 178 years old, doing good uh, and trying to make the world better because we are a part of it. Uh, has has been in the very DNA of Shari Tefila. That's not something by any stretch that I brought to the congregation when I came seven years ago. In fact, it was one thing that attracted me to to want to be, if I was privileged to be uh, chosen to be the senior rabbi of the congregation. So, for us, it's a tremendous honor to be able to host all of these incredibly inspiring uh, people and uh, and the Good People Fund is an organization I've admired for many years. I I wanted to go back to your own personal experience in terms of social action and social justice. If it's okay, I want to back up just even one step further, which is just to say that there's a very lively conversation in parts of the Jewish community right now about the role of social justice in synagogue life. Um, I think there are those who would say that, uh, you know, that for certain communities, it's it's kind of consumed the synagogue and consumed Judaism. And for me, uh, and it, it brings me back to where I am now, I was raised in a Jewish community where there was no disconnect between ritual and justice, no disconnect between authentic, unique Jewish expression and interfaith collaboration. Uh, those were those were all a part uh, of the community that I was privileged to grow in up in, in in suburban Chicago. And it was that kind of community, that kind of opportunity to bring together our most deeply held religious commitments and our obligation to make the world better because we're in it. That's what drew drew me to the rabbinate in the first place. Right. and uh, and so I just I've been thinking a lot about that. Uh, in the context of our, our our modern times and uh, and the questions that people are rightfully asking about the future of the Jewish people and the future of the synagogue, hopefully the communities I've served, I, I think they all have, you know, not because of me, but uh, alongside, have been a part of of bringing bringing all that together in in one place. And I was raised by communities and rabbis like that, 
Um, I was raised in a community that that cared deeply about all kinds of issues in 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 Chicago and nationally and in Israel and in uh, other places in the world. And you know, some of those issues affected me directly, and some of them more theoretically. And I would say gun violence was one of those issues that I cared about a lot. I grew up in Nifty, in our Reform Movement's youth movement. Uh, I grew up at at Osrui, the Reform Movement summer camp in Wisconsin. And uh, in those places, we learned a lot about the history and values and ethics and ritual practices and uh, and such uh, of Judaism. And we also met giants there in those places uh, who also acted on those Jewish values and ethics to make the world a better place. Unfortunately, in January 1999, my care and concern uh, about gun violence, uh, which to that point had been really theoretical and from a distance, thankfully, became much more personal when my father was murdered uh, at his place of business in Chicago. And uh, needless to say, it was a, a, a terrible a terrible thing for my family. Uh, I had been ordained as a rabbi six months at that point. Mm. Uh, my parents, first, the first grandchild on both sides had, had been born mm. just under a year before, our oldest, Ari. And it, it shook everything about our world. And I have to say, I didn't immediately become an activist on gun violence uh, in that moment. I was dealing with, you know, grieving and loss and trauma and and trying to help my mom and the rest of my family, you know, uh, put one foot in front of the other and such. So it was quite, it was, it was a bit of time before. And, and honestly, I just didn't know what to do with this story mm-hmm. other than to grieve uh, and, and to uh, to process all of which I needed to make the time to do. I think as rabbis, sometimes we're inclined and my wife teases me sometimes, you know, every book I read, every movie I see, she's like, this is going to be a sermon, right? And right. <laughs> more often than not, she's right. She's right, but of some, course. But some, but some experiences, and this was unfortunately one of them where it was it was really just about being a human being in, in, in grief for a long time. And eventually it, it led to, to work in this area of, of gun violence that I can speak about more, but that's... That was really obviously a, a terrible uh, pivot point in in my life and in the life of my of my family. And I think about my dad often when I'm doing work that I learned from him uh, and from my mom about about trying to act on the values that I've learned and not just have them be theoretical, not just live in a book, not just live in a synagogue. I talk to my congregants all the time that I feel like if if our if our values that we learn in religious school and in adult education and straight from the Torah are going to stay inside the walls, yes, and don't then we really should actions. that we we should we should close our building and open the world's biggest Starbucks because like what yeah. is it good for? How did you incorporate that loss into an active movement? So I I began to speak out in bits and pieces. You know, in the year or so after uh, my dad's death, I spoke at the Million Mom March in Atlanta, where we were living. And I think that must have been in two, the year 2000, maybe. But I wasn't really sure where to place myself and where to put my story. By then, by 2003, our younger son was born. He was named after my dad, Lester. Uh, his, his name's Lev. And we hadn't told him how his grandfather had died. You know, we knew we'd have to tell him someday. But we weren't eager to tell him that story, and he wasn't really asking. In, in about 2005, I got involved, and my synagogue got involved in, in a model of justice work called faith-based community organizing, 
uh, through a national network called the Industrial Areas Foundation. And there I started to learn about what it can look like when you bring together people from across lines of difference of all sorts, uh, mm-hmm. who you think maybe you don't really have much in common with, except that they're fellow human beings. But then when you hear their stories and they you share their your stories with them, you find that you have a lot much more in common. Your longings for a world of safety and and abundance for all is really is really very similar once you peel back the layers of the things that seem to be different. So I was learning a lot about this model and experiencing that model in Mawa, New Jersey, where I was a rabbi. We were involved in an environmental campaign that I'm really proud of and and some other things that we did. And then the Sandy Hook school shooting took place in December of 2012. And a number of leaders in IAF knew that I had a story that I wasn't telling. I could, I could, I could count on one hand, probably the number of times I had talked about it uh, from the, from the pulpit over what was basically maybe 12 years at that point. And so IEF work is mostly local. It's really powerful, but it's mostly local. It's not very often that IEF takes on a national campaign, but, but we started to ask ourselves in January of 2023, uh, 2013 rather, even as Congress was debating new national gun laws, and we knew that there would be new gun laws after after Sandy Hook, of course there were going to be. So we were encouraging our Congress people to vote for the best kind of legislation, but we were also beginning to ask ourselves this question, who has power to reduce gun violence in America? Certainly the president, whoever it is, and Congress, whoever is controlling Congress, has the ability to take action. But then once Congress decided to do nothing, they decided to stand idly by after Sandy Hook. They didn't accidentally not pass new laws. They didn't slip their minds. They didn't have to just do their hair that day. They decided to do nothing. We were really wrestling with the question of, is Congress the only power? Are are the president and Congress the only one who have power? Because if they do, we're really in trouble. And the short, shortest version of the story is that we realized that another power player, not that Congress and the president don't have power, and they do, and they should use it. And if they won't use it, we should find some people that we can elect who will, period, end of story. And there are lots of amazing gun violence organizations that are working congressional angles, federally, statewide, inspiring work. We realized if we were going to create a gun violence campaign, we didn't want to do one that was just like all the other ones. Uh, Some of the other ones were super well-funded and we didn't have a lot of money, but we did have organized people uh, all over the country. And so we decided to focus on gun manufacturers. We realized no one was focusing on them and no one in the gun violence prevention space even knew the names of of the CEOs of the companies that had made the 300 million guns in America. And through relationships we had with law enforcement and public officials in different places across the country, we came to a focus on a strategy that we called Do Not Stand Idly By that seeks to use the massive purchasing power of mayors and police chiefs and sheriffs and governors and the federal government that collectively purchase 40% of the guns in this country every year to marshal that purchasing power to press gun manufacturers directly to control their worst dealers and to innovate in gun safety. We, you know, we learned so much. We had no idea how many guns were purchased in this country every year with mm-hmm. our tax dollars right. by public officials. And they hadn't really thought when we started meeting with mayors and police chiefs 
you know, in little towns like Mawa, New Jersey, they also weren't thinking about the power they had as public purchasers. They thought about, you know, the police departments thought about the sidearms on their belts, but they didn't realize, they didn't think about the fact that when they decide which guns to buy, they're making a choice and they could make other choices if the gun companies aren't aren't being playing their productive role in yeah. controlling the worst dealers in America and such. So it started in this in th this chapter sort of started with the Sandy Hook school shooting and a question of can people of faith, organized people and organized money work together across lines of difference on an issue that affects all of us, it doesn't affect all of us equally, it doesn't affect all of us in the same way, but unfortunately in America it seems like very few people I talk to are more than a couple of degrees removed mm -hmm. from someone who's been affected by gun violence. And so that that started our campaign and these years on, we are continuing to push forward, feeling like we see some practice, some progress, but it's it's hard. It's hard work, but but it feels important. And and I do it in part to honor my memory, my father's memory. Nothing can bring him back. But if I can be a part of trying to reduce gun violence so that fewer families have to suffer what my family did, uh, it'll be worth it. A significant percentage of the population wants gun control, but nothing is happening. Right. There's such yeah. an incredible amount of frustration. Totally. Particularly now about everything. Yeah. Because sure. the world seems to be going in one direction and most people want it to be going in a totally other direction. Totally. And yeah. This seems like it could have significant impact and has had significant impact. Late in the Obama administration, we had been trying to get a meeting, if not with the president, but then with someone meaningfully high up in the administration, because the Pentagon was about to spend about $100 million to purchase new weapons for federal law enforcement. And we were trying to say to... Uh, to the Obama administration, which was right, you know, really on the right side on this issue fundamentally. Before you purchase a hundred million dollars in weapons, would you be willing to ask the manufacturers of those weapons what they're doing to control the less than five percent of dealers in America who are responsible for essentially all the crime guns that end up at crime scenes? Like maybe don't do business with the companies that are that are that are harming Americans. You know, each meeting we had was with a lower down person in the totem pole. Eventually, I think we had a meeting with a, an intern whose last day in the office was that day. And we knew we weren't getting anywhere, which was super frustrating because here we have someone who we think an administration who is on the right side of this issue. So eventually we uh, we did what we almost never do, which in, in, in organizing, which is that we actually sort of protested outside of the White House. Uh, that's not what we usually do. We'd rather be quietly in the building than loudly right. outside of the building. And then what happened, interestingly, is that in January of 2015, was it? Uh, the president announced, among other things, that he was asking federal agencies to look at the viability of using purchasing power. We were getting frustrated because he would do do these unbelievable, you know, eulogies that he had to do, unfortunately. Yeah, and then he would blame Congress for inaction. And we we agreed with him fundamentally, but we said, your pen purchases more guns than any other person. The federal government buys 25% of the guns in this country every year. You should use that power to press for change. So, you know, we're continuing to work it and uh, it's been hard. We, we've had more success with, you know, city officials and, and some state officials. Over the last few years, we've been focused actually on 
I, I joked that as a rabbi, I thought I would be making matches, but I would not, I did not predict, nor would I have expected that I would be introducing mayors and police chiefs to the designers of smart gun technology. <laughs> um, smart gun technology, which I hate the term, but is the term of art, is 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 guns and locks that are personalized to the user. So that actually the largest number of people are killed by gun every year in America are actually suicides. Yeah. So this technology would potentially reduce uh, suicides by people who know there's a gun in the home and use it to harm themselves or others. It would re potentially reduce all kinds of accidental shootings. We've all heard stories where a three-year-old finds a gun in mommy's purse and shoots mommy or themselves or a playmate. The interesting thing too, for individuals, it's actually something that people can approach their, their local uh -huh. mayors to do, right? Yeah. People sometimes say, well, how can I get involved? The answer is get a meeting with your mayor or, or police chief. And uh, those are things you can do. If you live in a village or a hamlet or a city or a town or a a state, you can ask your public official how how they might approach this differently. We've also looked back over the years and tried to study change uh, efforts in this country in general. Getting seatbelts in cars, reducing right. smoking, civil rights, equal marriage. None of these things happened overnight. No. None of them happened. One public service announcement, one lawsuit one piece of legislation uh, and they all took a lot of time. Yeah. So that's the thing that sort of gives me heart that it's been, you know, 10 or 11 years that we've been at this particular campaign and I wish we were further. I thought we'd be further, but, you know, sometimes if you look back over the course of, you know, the arc of the moral universe, sometimes bends slowly towards justice, but you, people have to bend it. It doesn't bend automatically. It doesn't happen, it doesn't happen uh, overnight. And it doesn't happen overnight. So no. I, I, th I still believe very much that this campaign can, you know, can really make an impact on it, on, it, on what you, you've rightly named as seemingly like an intractable issue. This is your time. Well, hearing that from you is, is so heartening because you have been, you and the Good People Fund have been such a part of, seeding change and encouraging change and and supporting people who who are doing such sacred work so it is i have to just say that's so heartening hearing that well, encouragement from you because because we all need the encouragement and i think it's one of the things i'm really excited about hosting the unconference is that i think it will give strength to i know within our congregation and hopefully other parts yeah. of the jewish community of new york city will turn out because i think we we can gain strength from one another and encouragement and um, and support in knowing that even though the work is hard, whatever whatever the particular issue is, right? I, I've seen enough of our over the years of our grantees who you know started out just one person with an idea, mm. and they're now a national movement. Amazing. There was a, there you know what they were doing like ending child marriage. First of all, who thought there was a problem with child uh -huh. marriage in the United States of America? Uh -huh. you know, but Freddie Reese, yeah. who you will hear, and and who the the uh, attendees will hear, yes, you know, it, it grew out of her own experience coming from the the ultra orthodox community that she was married to off to somebody who, you know, was an abuser and an alcoholic. She left that and went on to become one of the big champions of ending child marriage in the United States. And so far, I think incredible. 12 or 13 states have signed on to the legislation making it illegal.
So it is possible. And to meet people like that is, uh, yeah, well, to me, welcome, that's always inspiring. Welcome to my world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> within Sherry Tatila, what are the areas that your congregation are involved in tikkun olam? So I would say the longest standing work that's obviously still ongoing is around food justice. The congregations had a, a soup kitchen, a weekly lunch soup kitchen for probably 25 years now, possibly longer. Wow. And also we have an incredible uh, partnership program called Backpack Buddies. Mm-hmm. That is, I know it's not our, we're not, it's not uniquely ours, but it's something we're really proud of. Lots of our teens are involved in. Uh, which involves kids who are on free and reduced lunches, and uh, but they they go home on the weekends and they don't have food. So the kids, so we pack backpacks with uh, a family's amount of food that they can eat on the weekends, um, and sandwich Saturday, which where people come and make you know a thousand sandwiches and uh, lunch bags, and we deliver to a local food pantry. So some of the food justice work has been ongoing for a long time. Over the last seven or so years that I've been here, we've geared up and fundraised uh, and people raised to to host, to welcome uh, first an Iraqi refugee family and then an Afghan refugee family to New York City in partnership with Hyas, mm-hmm. um, which has been incredible. And, you know, when we talk about Jewish values and uh, remembering that we were slaves in Egypt, uh, there's no more powerful kind of example of the work that we can do when we remember that, you know, Hyas used to help people because they were Jews. Now we help people because we are Jews. I love that um, motto. Um, and so we partnered with Hyas in that work. Um, and then beyond that, we hosted a big conference for the reform movement last fall around climate justice. Uh, so we have a great climate justice team working. We have task forces on uh, reproductive rights mm-hmm. um, and and other areas. And then, especially over the last few years, uh, we've we've learned to pivot a lot too. When we're able to, when when there's a need for a particular moment, we've been able to mobilize people in in a number any number of areas depending on on the moment that we're in. The hardest thing to do is to remain optimistic. Mm. What keeps me going? Every I was going to ask you what keeps you going. What keeps me going? Yeah, is because I'm dealing with people who are making it possible. Totally, and it also tells us that we have to we have to do that work, <laughs> even when it's uphill and even when yeah. it seems endless. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm glad that you get to spend time with people who yeah. are doing that work because no, that's I, I, it, I, that's it that's a balm for me as well. What are you hoping that your that your congregants will We'll get from this. I think you just named it, honestly. I think the opportunity for me and for my congregants to be able to meet people who are taking on and have taken on humongous challenges in their community and who are making a big difference with the support of the Good People Fund, that is not something that we get to do every day. We don't get to meet those people every day. And I think I'm looking forward to the encouragement, the chizuk, the strength that my congregants will get. You know, it's one thing to read a story about mm-hmm. a person. It's one thing to hear a story or be mm-hmm. told a story. It's a whole other thing. And that's, you know, that's why community organizing is my jam. I think, you know, right. that it, it, when you hear someone's story face to face and and see 
you know, that they're not naive about the challenge. They recognize it, they see it, and they're determined to make a difference and that they are making a difference. Mm -hmm. To me, that is just so important in a world that, you know, where the good news never makes the news, right? That's not what leads off the story. It's just not. And so it's easy to think that there's just no progress being made in the right direction. And I think fundamentally, the unconference will be an opportunity for me and for my congregants to yeah. to see what incredible, just a, a, a fraction of the incredible work that you all are Huge. supporting. I think that's that's got to be the thing. That's the thing I'm yeah. most looking forward to. There's a lot of really... there's a lot of good out there. It helps for people to hear it on a regular basis. Abs- absolutely, um, for sure. So we are, as I as I said when we started, we are honored to bring this program to your congregation. Thank good. you. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.